welcome back to A View from Mulberry Street. I am your host, Matthew J. Mary. You know, Neil Healy and I uh, decided we're going to take a little bit of a Christmas New Year vacation. Neil decided to put together this highlight for you, the highlights of A View from Mulberry Street for the year 2022. So we're going to go to that, and when we're finished, we'll come back to me. Take it away, Neil. Thank you, Matt. 2022 was a great year, and we have a special episode for you featuring John Gotti, Tommy Karate, San Gennaro Festival, and the list goes on. Happy holidays. Famous mob hits. There are always those who say, hey, Matt. We don't want to hear how much you love people. We don't want to hear how much you love God. We don't want to hear how much you respect people. We want blood. We want blood. Oh, do you? Well, people always ask me, they say, Matt, do you know where the bodies are buried? The answer, no, I don't. But I do know where the bodies have been splattered on the streets. Tommy Karate. You know, one thing I learned during the course of of that case, Tommy was facing the death penalty. There were three murders that carried a death penalty sentence. But yet, we always seemed to want to have fun. And there was a lot of bantering that went back and forth at the courthouse. Every every morning before the judge would take the bench, we would always uh, have a little session with the prosecutors on the case. And uh, at that time, Tommy, he used to like to talk to the assistant U.S. attorney on the case, David Shapiro. And uh, Tommy liked to kid around with David. And one day Tommy said to him, Dave, why, why do you... Why do you want me dead? Why, why do you want me dead? And, you know, Dave Shapiro said, listen, Tommy, I don't want you dead. I just want to bring you to justice for all the murders you've committed. And at that point, they had indicted him for nine murders and had boasted to Tommy that they were investigating him for 37 others. Well, anyhow, Tommy said to Dave Shapiro, to, to the prosecutor in the case, Listen, Dave, you're a nice guy. How about we make a deal? And Dave said, I don't want to make any kind of a deal with you, Tommy. And Tommy said, well, this is a good deal. He said, if if I win the case, if I'm found not guilty, not guilty on all charges, what I want to do is I want to take you out and buy you a beer and, you know, have a night out (laughs) on the town. And if you win, And if I have to get the death penalty, then I would like you, I'll give you the opportunity to personally come to my cell. Of course, I will be in chains, hands and feet. And I will allow you to personally shoot me between the eyes because it seems like you really are anxious to see me dead. The San Gennaro Festival. This is Matthew J. Mary, and this is A View from Mulberry Street. And today happens to be uh, the 
opening Sunday of the San Gennaro Festival, known to the residents as the feast, the feast above all other feasts in New York City and maybe around the country. It's the most attended Italian festival maybe in the whole world. And that restaurant over there, Ristorante Italiano da Gennaro, that used to be a place called Larry's Bar. And it was the only bar in the whole neighborhood that people could have a drink at. And years later, that became uh, a change from Larry's Bar to Umberto's Restaurant, a clam house, much like Vincent's. We're going to take a walk over to Vincent's in a second. But when Umberto's opened up, it was kind of quiet. They weren't doing great business until one night, a guy named Joey Gallo was celebrating his birthday right in there in, in Umberto's restaurant. And something happened that night, but Joey wound up getting shot quite a few times and wound up on the pavement outside, right here in the middle of the street of Mulberry Street and Hester. And from that moment on, believe it or not, this whole neighborhood resurrected business-wise. It was moribund. Nothing was going on here. Everything was dead. And, and that coincided with the release of the movie The Godfather. So this has to be around 1973. The neighborhood was quiet. Nothing going on. No money being made. All of a sudden, Joey Gallo gets assassinated in Umberto's restaurant right here where we're standing and the whole neighborhood changes entirely and I'm not joking around about that. Johnny Gotti. And anyhow, one day I was waiting for the elevator to leave the attorney's room and John Gotti uh, was also waiting for the elevator to go back upstairs to, you know, his assigned place. And, um, uh, we got caught in the count. What does it mean to get caught in the count? Uh, every day in every prison in the United States, especially all the federal prisons, at least twice a day, they have what they call the count. And that means wherever you are as an inmate, you have to stand still, stop what you're doing, and just don't move. Just stay where you are. And they're going to count you whether you're in your cell whether you're in the cafeteria, whether you're at some kind of a, a program, uh, wherever you are, you stand still, that's where you are. And so John Gotti was stuck uh, in the waiting for the elevator outside the attorney's room with me. And uh, there was an individual there by the name of Charlie Brody. Charlie Brody is a legendary character from my neighborhood. Uh, he, uh, his real name was Charles de Palermo. His brothers were Joseph D. Palermo, also known as Joe Becky. Uh, his older brother was Pete Petey Beck, also known as Peter D. Palermo. And uh, they came from Prince Street in Manhattan, uh, which is basically intersecting the Ravenite Social Club, which later became John Gotti's hangout. But anyhow, uh, Charlie Brody was uh, an older man and someone who was a friend of my family, and, you know, uh, Charlie whispered in John's ear, and uh, next thing you know it, I'm shaking hands with John Gotti. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about you, and uh, my pleasure to meet you. Well, from that time, we were, we were stuck in the hallway 
for about 30 minutes, and we're talking about various cases, his case, the case I was working on, other people's cases. He was very astute. Uh, uh, he, he understood uh, the legal system. Uh, he, he had a real good, raw uh, uh, intelligence concerning uh, the courthouse and what goes on there. And so throughout the next several months, uh, when I'd be visiting uh, my client in another case, I would always be talking to John. And, and it's always a pleasure to talk to him. He always had something uh, smart to say, something to add to every conversation. And his demeanor was always that of a gentleman. I'm really talking about gentlemen. At least that's the way he was with me. Famous mob hits. The Thompson submachine gun that was used to kill Frankie Yell was also used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, the famous St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago. They blamed that one on Al Capone, Johnny Gotti. When he got out of prison one night, um, to be precise, approximately April 19th, April 20th, uh, 1987, my daughter was born on April 19th in Lenox Hill Hospital. And I had been up at the hospital for several days and uh, in and out, my wife, in those days, they allowed the, 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 the woman giving birth to stay in the hospital like for four days. And uh, so I was in and out of Lenox Hill Hospital. I went to dinner in a place called Il Gardinetto, which was a place frequented by John. And uh, I was kind of messed up. I, I had a beard and I, had, I was wearing a jogging suit, uh, pretty messy. And, and as I walked from my table, uh, I hadn't ordered dinner yet. As I walked from my table to the restroom, to the men's room, which was down the steps, uh, I caught John from the side of my eye. And he was sitting at a table with about 20 gentlemen and in full battle array. I mean, in splendor, dressed to the nines. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of turned away. I didn't want him to see me because I was such a mess. I didn't look very good that day. And uh, when I came up from the men's room, I kind of glanced over toward where John was, was sitting. And, and there he was, his finger, you know, like that, like beckoning me to come over. And, and so I did. And, uh, it was kind of a funny, uh, uh situation, you know, I, I walked over and he said, hey, Matt, he said, you used to like to talk to me uh, when we were at the MCC. And uh, he said, now that I'm out, he said, why are you passing me up like that? Is something wrong? Did I do something to you? And, you know, of course, I, I laughed and I explained that, you know, I just didn't want to interrupt him. I, I saw that he was with his friends and, you know, everybody's all dressed up and having dinner. And so John invited me uh, to dinner, uh, and, and uh, I very respectfully kind of squeezed my, my way out of that because I was meeting someone else, and I was waiting for that person to come. But, but I sat down with John and had a drink with him, and he admonished me. He said, don't ever do that again. Whenever you see me, make sure you come over to say hello. Jerry Capisi. 
some people may think that, that a lot of your stories come from law enforcement, and they do, and, and many people conclude that you're like a public relations man for, for the government. Now, I know you always, always give defense lawyers a chance to present their point of view and the facts that might be favorable to their case. Uh, do you consider your, your column to be fair and impartial? And how do you react when, when people think you're on like one side or another? Of course I do, Matty. And, you know, you, 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 you said it. I, I definitely will try to get the side of the gangster, so to speak, or the organized crime guy, the wise guy from uh, his attorney or, uh, you know, at, at every at every step along the way. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, some days um, on Thursdays, uh, I'll get uh, annoying emails saying that I'm a shill for the government. Uh, some Thursdays, I'll get annoying emails saying that I'm a shill for the gangsters or the wise guys. It depends on whose ox is being gored at that particular moment. Uh, each, uh, you know, each story I do, I try to do as fairly and as accurately as I can based on the information I can get. A lot of times, defense lawyers won't talk. A lot of times, organized crime, you know, uh, detectives and cops and uh, prosecutors won't talk either. And then I have to try and do the best I can based on court uh, court records and uh, dealing with uh, other conversations with people, you know, who I'm not quoting. But uh, the bottom line is I do my best to get it, you know, to get it as accurate as I can. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a very interesting uh, few decades uh, covering organized crime, that's for sure. Things have changed quite a bit from the days of uh, uh, John Gotti and all the murders that were going on in the 80s and 90s in Brooklyn and Queens, that's for sure the National Commission on Organized Crime. Once upon a time, President Johnson created a Commission on Organized Crime. The National Commission on Organized Crime, way back, I think, in 1966. And what, what stunned me was one phrase from that report, which was quite lengthy. And it stunned me back then when I read it. I was about 16 years old. And it stuns me right now that I'm an old man. And that is that the commission, the Presidential Commission on Organized Crime, concluded that organized crime must be obliterated from the face of the earth at all costs. At all costs. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean at all costs? Well, let me tell you what it means. It means that in order for the government to accomplish their stated goal of obliterating organized crime from the face of the earth, what they had to do was to prostitute the entire criminal justice system. They had to prosecute people by prostituting their own integrity over and over and over for decades. And in my mind, the commission case, according to Rudy Giuliani, was, was their golden, you know, the golden cow, right? The golden calf. But to me, it is a perfect example of how the government does everything wrong in order to achieve its goals. Gianni Russo. And we're going to talk about what Gianni Russo has done since he portrayed that rotten, wife-beating traitor, Carlo, in The Godfather. Gianni Russo, welcome 
to view from Mulberry Street. Maddie. Everybody knows uh, about your character in The Godfather, and we've we've got to spend a little bit of time on that, a little bit of time on the making of The Godfather, a little bit of time on what's going on right now uh, for this 50th anniversary. Uh, it's turning out to be a, a mockery of an extravaganza. And uh, But before we get to that, just... Tell our, our, I, mean, I want to ask you a question. Why, do you, why are you saying it's a mockery of an extravagant? Well, you know, there's, it, there's a lot of good things going on, but mostly everybody is focused on this, this series called The Offer. And, um, you know, I just couldn't, not only I couldn't get through it, I couldn't even get through the first episode. And I didn't like the previews and I didn't like what people were saying about it. So, you know, everybody's viewing the making of the Godfather movie through the lens of this offer uh, documentary. And I, I know from talking to you privately that you're not uh, too happy with it anyhow. Why don't we start off there? Well, yeah, please. I mean, that's current. It's everybody's mind. And, and it's, you know, it's a situation that uh, I, I've been blessed by being in the Godfather 52 years ago. I mean, we shot it. And then it's out now. It's the 50th anniversary, as you mentioned, this February. And they came out with a film called The Offer. And now I'm a character in it. There's a guy playing me, which I think is hysterical how this revolved, but evolved rather. And um, but like you, I'm getting negative feedback from even my grandsons, which fortunately I have 10 of. And I've been, I have two daughters, nine sons, ten grandsons, one granddaughter, and now they're in their teens and they're saying, "Poppy, why are they projecting you that you're a womanizer and you actually hit Tyre?" I've been friends with Tyre to, to up to this day, and it's I mean, it's Hollywood, you know, taking a liberty. And never, I mean, I I'm writing my second book now, and I knew when we had to vet the book. They checked out names and people to verify that it's true. Nobody called me, which I think they're going to be very sorry about. That, that's kind of that's kind of amazing that they would uh, do a project like this and portray it to be what they're portraying it to be, and not even to consult with you. Uh, who's, you know, let, let's face it, Johnny, you're one of the few people left in, in that cast. And, and you know, far from uh, uh, retiring, you're going full steam ahead and you know everything that's going on in the current world, the current business, the current entertainment field. And uh, certainly they would have uh, they would have uh, inured to their own benefit to, to, to speak to you. I can't believe that they didn't even, uh, you know, attempt to sit you down and to say, hey, here's what we're doing. We want to help. The San Gennaro Festival. Uh-oh. Uh, here, here he is. What's up, Counselor? Is this the Cannoli King? What's up, Counselor? Good, good. How you doing? How's everything? Good, good, good. You know, we've been, we've been... I got a new tenant in the neighborhood. What is this? Cafe this Gigi. Is my wife's Listen. restaurant. All right. Don't say anything bad about anybody, because on a view from Mulberry Street, yeah. we only say good things. Even when we attack the FBI and we the government, good, we, we say it in a very nice way. Don't they call them full-blooded Italians? <laughs> right? FBI. Yeah, we love them, don't we? 
But anyhow, Cafe Palermo is something that sprung up after I left the neighborhood in 1956, yeah. and I went to Knickerbocker Village, the Fourth Ward. Okay. Now it's, but old, now it's old Chinese. Now the main thing, the the center of Little Italy, is this place, Cafe Palermo, and this man, John DeLutro, also known as the Cannoli King. John, could you give us a little look? at what you're serving in this place? Sure, I said cannoli. All right, let's look. Respect. Not many people even know what respect is, let alone know how to respect others. When the secret of respect is found in us, it's like finding a pot of gold. And it's worth much, much more on earth and in heaven than anything else. Mind you, this is what I'm telling my kids. Respect transcends everything in the world. It is the only thing that survives our earthly lives. And it carries with us into the new life, the next life. The respect we get on earth is something we can take with us. You know, they say you can't take it with you. You can't take your money with you, but you can take your respect with you and show it to God Almighty because he knows who you are. If you don't know what respect is, you better find out soon. And once you do, make respect the centerpiece of your life and you'll be a very happy, happy person. This is Matthew J. Mary and... This is a view from Mulberry Street.